showing up Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. They'll gather around a brand new, good-looking Nissan hard-body truck. And they'll stand there as long as they can. And the last one remaining wins that beautiful truck. you got to be a nut to do it. Russell's out here in boots. Bikes are five minutes every hour. What? And 15 minutes every six hours. My husband and I have been praying for a truck, and I believe that this is what God wants us to do. And she started laughing, and I said, oh, praise the Lord, that's so neat, because I was praying for her right during that time, and I know there were other people I'm not taking credit for. I'm going to win a truck. Praise the Lord. This is when the big dogs hunt. You can't hunt with the big dogs. You get up on the porch with the pups. Truck make money. Cars don't make money. I can stay up about 101 hours without sleep. My feet's not hurting as bad. They've done got numb. My back's not hurting as bad. It's done got numb. I don't like being numb. Numb. I would compare it to uh, killing a deer the first time. First time you kill a really big animal. It's exhilarating. <sighs> and you feel like you could jump to the moon. That was a 1997 documentary entitled Hands on a Hard Body. All right, that was the trailer for it. Uh, it was a documentary that detailed a uh, annual gimmick, a marketing gimmick that a dealership did in Longview, Texas yearly. And in this gimmick, basically, they had a competition that was uh, basically a, a sleep deprivation competition. All right, and it kind of went like this that every year they'd roll out a truck or a hard body. All right, and you would have 24 contestants who would have to put their hands on this hard body truck. And basically for every hour, you were given a five-minute break that you could pull away from the truck. Every six hours, you were given 15 minutes that you could pull away from that truck, and you could do whatever you wanted during those times. You could go to the restroom. You could take a nap. You could do whatever you wanted. You could grab some food. But other than those times, you had to always keep a hand on the truck. The moment that you leaned against the truck, you were disqualified. The moment that you squatted from the truck, you were disqualified. And so what you had was a competition that would often go 72 hours in which you'd have these competitors who were keeping their hands on this truck and they were doing it and enduring all kinds of sleep deprivation, all kinds of physical discomfort to win a simple Nissan, simple hard body truck. All right. Now, what in the world does that have to do with anything with our passage this morning, all right? Uh, I was thinking about this competition, and one, I, I think, honestly, you guys kind of see the trailer. I think the characters are just hilarious, all right? You, you take these characters after about 48 hours of sleep deprivation, and hilarity ensues, all right? Uh, as these guys compete w- against one another, I've often thought, how in the world would you train for that kind of a competition, all right? To stand on your feet for 72 hours straight, uh, to have had no sleep. W- what in the world do you do? And I think a lot of it's not so much physical, but I think a lot of it would have been mental, right? How do you keep your head in the game? How do you keep yourself pressing forward when uh, you're encountering all kinds of physical discomfort, when your mind is beginning to betray you because you haven't slept and all you want to do is just quit, right? Sure, you would love a truck, but even so, you would love your bed and you would love to get off your feet that at this point have gone numb, as they said over and over again, right? Uh, This is a competition unlike any others. Uh, I got kind of thought as I was thinking through it that uh, in many ways, I think it really sets up for us this morning, uh, our our passage in Hebrews chapter 10. Let me kind of give you guys a quick disclaimer, though, that if uh, the trailer kind of whetted your appetite and you want to go find this documentary, let me just kind of warn you, if you walk into a, a video store like Hastings, please don't tell them that your pastor wanted you to rent a movie called Hands on a Hard Body, all right? Be careful as you ask for it. Be careful as you track it down, all right? You may land in a part of the video store that you were not intending, all right? And your pastor did not suggest that, all right? So, uh, but Hebrews 10, what's the connection? How in the world are we making that, all right? Uh, We're going to look at a passage this morning as we look at the second half of Hebrews 10, if you guys want to turn there. And what we're going to find is we're going to find a a group of people who, in a sense, are 36 hours, 48 hours, metaphorically, into a grueling competition of endurance. It's not about sleep deprivation, but what we're going to find is it's a group of people who've been enduring all kinds 
kinds of persecution, who have been during, enduring all kinds of difficulty, and they're uh, a far ways into this, and yet they're realizing that it's not over, and it's not going to be over anytime soon. And so for this audience, as the writer of Hebrews writes to them throughout this book, and particularly this morning in our passage, there's going to be a challenge for this group to continue to press forward and continue to be faithful to Jesus Christ, no matter what they're experiencing, no matter the difficulties, no matter the hardships. And as we kind of walk through that, I thought it's also relevant to you and I, because I think for you and I, as we kind of walk through the spring semester, spring break, which brings a lot of rest for a lot of us at times can bring a lot of pressures as well. As we go through the rest of the spring semester, I feel like the pressures of the semester of school finals tests that are coming and beginning to mount up are, are beginning to stack up on us in such a way that I think for a lot of us, the challenge is to continue to press forward and be faithful. That amidst the pressures of school, amidst the pressures and the cost of walking with Jesus at times, the question is what maintains our faithfulness to Jesus? Uh, when life gets hard and when it seems like walking with Jesus comes at a great cost, why in the world would you and I hang in there? Now, that really is a question that the writer of Hebrews is going to try to answer for our group this morning and for you and I in Hebrews 10. And as he answers it, he's not going to just hit the issue of motivation, but he's also going to hit the issue of resources. Not just why would we endure when the costs are at times astronomical, but how in the world do you and I endure those kinds of pressures that for this audience was in a culture and a day and time in which their faith was about to cost them their lives. Obviously, you and I don't live in that kind of a culture. And yet walking with Jesus, the longer that you walk with him is the harder it gets. And at times, the more costly it gets. And my concern for you guys isn't just that you would walk with Jesus this semester. But my concern for you guys is that you guys would walk with Jesus for a lifetime. A lot of the things that you guys are putting in place in your lives right now in this season of college really sets you guys up to walk with him for a lifetime. And I think Hebrews 10 really comes at that theme, comes at that challenge, and really comes right at it this morning, and I think answers a lot of it for us. What we're going to do is we kind of walk from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 39, is we're actually going to go to the back part of the passage and kind of work backwards. So if you're a sequential kind of person, this is going to drive you nuts this morning, all right? Uh, but I think it's going to be actually a little bit more clear as we kind of walk through it, because I think the story actually starts at the end of the passage and actually it works backwards. So by working backwards, we're actually going to work forward. So just hang with me, all right? Uh, but we're going to start Hebrews chapter 10. If you look with me, verses 32 to 35. The writer of Hebrews tells us, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. We pray with me. Father God, we give you great thanks that you have given us all the resources and all the confidences in the world, uh, that you are who you said you are, and that you will return. And Father, I pray in the midst of a day in which we await your return, in the midst of a culture that is at times hostile to you, in the midst of the cost that it takes to walk with you, Lord, I pray that you'd give us endurance this morning. I pray that you'd give us motivations to endure, and I pray that you'd give us a sense of how we endure as well. Father, I pray in the midst of all the pressures that, are, that register for us, even as we come here this morning, whether it's the pressures that are coming this afternoon and the things we've got to get done, or uh, just the pressures of a relationship or a conflict or the different things that we're walking through, Lord, I pray that in the midst of that, Lord, that you would give us a sense that you are better. And uh, then in the midst of uh, the cost that we may come to walk with you, Lord, I pray that you give us a confidence that you are better than anything else we can pursue. And that even though walking with you might be costly at times, Lord, I pray that you would give us just a fervency of devotion to you. I pray that you restore that to us even this morning, Lord, and that you would just uh, give us clarity, uh, give us consistency as we walk through a passage that is just incredibly difficult. I pray that you'd lay it open, that you'd illuminate our minds, you'd allow us to understand, and even more, Lord, I pray that you give us hearts that are softened to you. 
Soften to respond however you would lead and wherever you would take us this morning, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. All right, in this last half of our section of this passage this morning, really what we're going to see is that to liken it to a little bit of the competition in the trailer that I gave you guys in the intro, uh, we're going to kind of see in a sense some contestants and their challenge, right? Kind of walk through this in 32 to 35, but eventually kind of what we see is that the writer of Hebrews is writing to a people that have endured great things already. Uh, they're in a sense 36 hours, 48 hours into a sleep deprivation contest. In a sense, they've, they've gone really far with Jesus already. They've paid great costs for their faith in Jesus Christ already. And the question and the challenge before them is that whether they would continue to endure or not. Notice verse 32, he says, uh, remember the former days. Looking backwards, he says, I know that you've already endured great conflict of sufferings. You've already been made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. And you've even been shares with those who were so treated. Whether you are experiencing it or not, you join with those who were. And therefore, you are experiencing it also. Verse 34, you showed sympathy to the prisoners and you even accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Notice they've, they've encountered and they've endured and they've not forsaken Jesus Christ even in the midst of all that they were experiencing and encountering. And so the writer of Hebrews comes to them and says, in light of all this, verse 35, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. He says that you've already been enlightened in verse 32. That I think these are people, and we'll look at this as we walk through this passage. These are people who've already trusted in Jesus Christ. These are believers. These are the people of God. And what he's saying to them is this. Hey, you've already come to know the truth. But even though life is spinning and even though life is hitting you in ways that you never imagined it would, don't let go of Jesus Christ despite the pressures that you're encountering. In fact, you have such confidence in what you've believed. Don't, don't forsake what you've believed in light of the pressures that are around you. And he says even further, verse 35, don't throw away that confidence, which has a great reward. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. The challenge before these contestants was to hang in and to continue to endure to continue to press forward despite the cost, despite the pressures that were on them. And really, I think for many of us, as we kind of walk through this, I think in particular, really where the writer of Hebrews is going to spend a lot more time is not just necessarily the challenge that was before them. I think for a lot of us, we realize that we're supposed to walk with Jesus Christ. But the question is, in the midst of the pressures that you and I encounter, why would we endure when it's costly? And really what the writer of Hebrews is going to do in the majority of our passage this morning is hit the issue of motivation. Why endure? Why pay a cost to walk with Jesus Christ when not paying that cost and at times forsaking and forgetting Jesus would sure be a lot easier? Why do it? I I think the writer of Hebrews is going to be like a master coach who's going to hit all of the right buttons and he's going to press his audience even past and even further beyond what they thought they could handle. Like a coach who pushes his athletes beyond what they think they can handle physically and presses all of the right buttons to motivate them. So the writer of Hebrews is going to do and hitting the issue of motivation. He's going to hit the reasons why they ought to continue to endure. What's in front of them? Why is it worth it? What's, what's, can they experience and what can they find? And ultimately, kind of as we walk through that, what we're going to see is that he's going to hit them on two different fronts. And what he's going to do in our one passage this morning is what I think the New Testament writers do throughout the New Testament. Is they hit you and I on two different kinds of motivations that cause us and press us forward to endure and to walk faithfully with Jesus Christ. If, if I were to give you guys an analogy, essentially it's the carrot and the stick. All right, What is the carrot that motivates us to continue to press forward? And what is the stick, <laughs> the punishment? What is the, the, the part that hurts that continues us and causes us not to, to, to take off and to turn off the path of walking with Jesus? Look at verse 35. He says again, do not throw away your confidence. Why? Because it has a great reward. There's a carrot. There's a reward. There's a prize in front of us if we continue to walk faithfully with Jesus. He says it a different way in verse 36. He says, you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. 
There's a prize before us if we will continue to endure faithfully with Jesus Christ. There's a reward that awaits us. Ultimately, I think, and we've been walking with this and talking through these themes throughout the book of Hebrews all fall and even through the spring, that I think the prize that's in front of this audience is not heaven. The prize that's in front of this audience is not heaven because they've already secured that. But the prize that's in front of them is something in addition to heaven. In fact, as we look a little bit more closely here at the stick or the punishment that comes, what we're going to see is that it has nothing to do with heaven itself. And the contrast to the prize that comes with the punishment will show us exactly what he's talking about. Look with me what he says in verses 37 and on. Notice the punishment. Notice the stick. For yet in a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if this one shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. All right, the stick before the audience was that if they had forsaken Jesus Christ, God would not have been pleased with them, all right? In fact, he says it even more strongly in verse 39. Notice, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Hebrews chapter 10 is, I will tell you, I think one of the hardest passages in the book of Hebrews, if not one of the hardest passages in our New Testament, because the language is so strong. Notice the stick. The displeasure of the Lord and even the destruction of the Lord for his people. (laughs) What in the world is the writer of Hebrews talking about? I I think for a lot of us as we walk through this, a lot of us have heard before that Jesus Christ died on a cross to forgive us of our sins. And he offers to you and I the free gift of eternal life. And that he does what we could not do. He stands in our place so that we don't have to receive what we had earned by our sin. And he takes condemnation, he takes judgment, and he takes death upon him in our place. And so you and I receive a free gift, a free offer of eternal life and the forgiveness of our sins because we cannot merit it. We cannot earn it. And he gives to us what we cannot earn. And so salvation, eternal life, the forgiveness of our sins is an absolutely free gift. And so Jesus Christ forgives us of our sin and God forgets our sins, separates it as far as the east is from the west. And if that's the case, then what in the world is the writer of Hebrews talking about? Because it sure seems like God has not forgotten our sins. (laughs) It sure seems like they're very present and they're even influential in how he'll deal with us. And what I want to do is separate out for you the manner in which God deals with his people. He deals with his people often in one basis that's unconditional and another basis that's conditional. That for you and I, like a parent who deals with his children, no matter what you and I do, hopefully at least in human parents, we can never be separated from our parents, right? There's no way that we could ever become, in my case, not a, a child of Todd and Sharon Corey, all right? Uh, there's nothing I can do to separate myself from that identity, from that family status. And yet, I can sure as heck displease them, and I can sure as heck uh, frustrate them, and they can discipline, and they can bring judgment upon me. And what we're going to see as we walk through the book of Hebrews is that the writer of Hebrews is going to be talking about how God deals with his people, and particularly how he judges his people for their disobedience. And that judgment has nothing to do with heaven and hell. Please catch that. And so if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, your lifestyle has nothing to do with getting into a relationship with him. Your lifestyle has everything to do with the fact that you are utterly helpless to fix your situation. And the only thing that you can do is lean and fall at the, at the foot of the cross and receive a free gift that Jesus paid on your behalf as he died in your place on a cross. But for those of us who've entered into that relationship, the question for you and I is what motivates us to live righteously? If we've entered into a relationship that was free, there's nothing we can do to to enter into it apart from what he's done on our behalf. And there's nothing that we can do to lose this relationship. Then the question is, why does it matter how you and I live? Why does it matter at all? And what is the motivation at all for you and I to actually live righteously and to pay the cost to walk with God in this lifetime? Why? What's the cost? What's the motivation? 
That's where the writer of Hebrews is going. And he's going to talk about, in a sense, two things in the stick, displeasure and destruction. Those are incredibly strong words. And yet really what verses 26 to 31 do is set the stage to explain exactly what he's talking about. And really in verses 26 to 31, what you're going to see is a warning. And and it begins in verses 26 to 27 in, in probably what is some of the strongest language of anywhere that we find in our Bible, particularly as he talks about how God deals with his people. Notice what verses 26 to 27 say. For a people who are needing to endure, for people who are under pressure, this is what he says to them. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Holy snikes. <laughs> what is he saying? All right. Uh, notice there's a couple conditions in the warning. There's a couple things that, that highlight what you and I would have to do to fulfill and to experience the consequences of this warning. He says, first of all, first condition, if we go on sinning willfully, all right. The first condition is willful continuance in sin. In particular, it's conscious choice and it's a continual choice. It's a process in which there's a continual choice to defy God in sin. And it's not just a struggle with sin that we, we, we wrestle with, but it's, it's outright defiance against God. In fact, he says, furthermore, I think it's also clearly for someone who's trusted in Jesus Christ. Because he says the second condition is after receiving the knowledge of the truth. In verse 32, we talked about one who, after being enlightened, that the people that are being talked to in verses 19 to 39 are people who've trusted in Jesus Christ already. If you've heard and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, it's not that I don't want you to listen this morning, but this passage is all about the people of God. This is all about how God handles his household. So this is for those who've already entered into a relationship with him. And what he's saying is there comes a consequence for continual conscious sin. In particular, what he says is the consequence is that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What in the world, right? What does it mean that there's no more a sacrifice for sins? Does that mean that Christ has not paid the penalty for my sins and therefore heaven is in jeopardy? I don't think that's at all what the writer of Hebrews is saying. In fact, he's going to draw to an Old Testament parallel in verse 28 that's going to explain exactly what he's talking about. Verse 28 is going to refer back to the Old Testament to show in the Old Testament what was the parallel, what was the precedent for what he's talking about here in the New Testament. Notice in verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. All right, he's going to draw to an Old Testament situation and an aspect of the law which God gave to the nation of Israel. Particularly the background really is in Deuteronomy 17. We're not going to go there, but if you're interested, you can run there. And what you're going to see is in the Old Testament, there was a stipulation that for someone who had high-handed sin, I don't know, it's not literally high-handed, but metaphorically, and that they had, in a sense, raised their hand and defied God and said, I don't care. I know what you've told me to do, but I'm going to defy you in the way that I worship. I'm going to defy you in the way that I live. I'm going to defy you in what I believe. And for that person who was a part of the people of God, for that person, he says, that person is going to face severe judgment. In particular, the, the stipulation in the law in the Old Testament was that that person died without mercy at the hands of at least two to three witnesses. That if their high-handed sin was, was uh, witnessed by at least two to three people, the only thing that was awaiting them was uh, judgment. And that judgment was, was present life, not future life. That judgment was temporal, not eternal. That judgment was here in this life. And particularly, it was that they were going to be stoned to death or they were going to be cut off from the nation of Israel. Which is why when, when we get into the Gospels and uh, the nation of Israel brings out the adulterous woman, they're expecting Jesus to tell the nation of Israel to stone her. And he goes a different direction. But in the law, there were stipulations that for high-handed sin, that it was a complete defiance against God, the, those people were to be killed. All right? That is incredibly hard language. 
All right. But, but what was the significance of it? Remember, the law was not in, in a means to get them saved and get them heaven and get them eternal life. It was means to restore their fellowship to him. So having entered into a relationship with them, with God, that the law was intended so as to help them know how to walk with God, to help them know how in the midst of the bad choices they made, in the midst of their sins, there were sacrifices that were to uh, remove the penalty and the consequences of their sins, primarily in the present. In the Old Testament, if they obeyed, they were blessed. If they disobeyed, they were cursed. And their repentance and their offering of sin was to remove the curses of God from them presently in their lives. All right, even as he goes to this Old Testament example, it's not about heaven and hell, but it's about a present experience of judgment. And what he's saying in verse 27 is that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but there does remain a terrifying expectation of judgment. It's a little bit like when you were uh, disciplined by your parents, you knew you were in trouble, you known you would cross them. And so they sent you to your room where what was going to happen? You just awaited on judgment, right? There was no escape. Once you got sent to your room, it was over and you're waiting for your dad to come in and uh, punish, right? Uh, in many regards, an example kind of came to mind this week for me as I was thinking through this passage, what in the world is he talking about? And then I thought about when I was in elementary school, I went one time and visited my aunt in Alabama and we decided to play a prank on my father. My dad through elementary school was quite the disciplinarian uh, in our home. And uh, if you press the right buttons, you could cause him to flip out and you could bring utter anger and judgment upon him and upon yourself. All right. And so what I decided to do in, uh, with my aunt was we decided to glue a earring uh, to my ear. All right. Front and back. All right. Uh, not as big of a deal in our day, but when I was a kid, huge deal. All right. Um, and, and I knew if anything that would press all of my dad's buttons and he would just be fire. All right. And so sure enough, I came back, flew back home to Dallas and my mom picked me up. She couldn't stop staring at the earring. Um, she, yet, she didn't say anything about it till we were pulled on our street and we're pulling home. And she said, what are you going to do when dad sees that? And uh, not, not wanting my mom to be utterly terrified, I went ahead and told her, hey, we've just glued this on. It's just temporary. Because my mom feared that my dad may literally just pull it out and, and pull my earlobe, right? Cut, cut it right open, all right? And so sure enough, my dad seeing the earring lost it, all right? Uh, utterly lost it, all right? And so uh, I, I tried to explain to him, dad, I need you to know that, you know, this is my decision. I want to express myself in this kind of way. And I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And so basically I'm a testimony of two witnesses, him and my mom. He told me if there were any more witnesses to the earring, if I left the house, there would be no more witnesses to my life. All right. <laughs> that, that clear act of defiance was a death sentence for me in that family. All right. It wasn't that I was no longer going to be his son. I just wasn't going to be his son still living. All right. <laughs> and, and as funny as that seems and as over the top as that judgment was, I quickly let him know before he really lost it, that it was just glued on. Ha ha. He still didn't think it was that funny. All right. But <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. All right. So and it's a good story. So there we are. Um, but really, that's one of the clearest moments for me as a child that I just outright defied my parents and went right at them, all right? Not, as we look at the Old Testament example, this isn't just what God did for just general rebellion or general sin, all right? This was for high-handed, clearly devious, clearly rebellious acts that were just an affront to God, all right? And so what you're going to see here in verse 28 and verses 26 and 27 is not generally how God handles his people when we struggle with sin. This is for clear and conscious choices of rebellion and, and a forsaking of Jesus Christ. In fact, what, what gets even more troubling is when you look at verse 29, 29, because what the writer of Hebrews is going to say is, if it was that bad in the Old Testament, the consequences are even worse for you and I in the New Testament. Look what he says in verse 29. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve when he has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? and has insulted the spirit of grace. 
Notice in verse 29, the writer of Hebrews says that what was encountered in, in the Old Testament was, was wiffle ball to what's going to be encountered in the New Testament, all right? This is big league baseball, right? The judgment that God is going to have for the people of God in the New Testament is even more severe than what he measured out in the Old Testament, which is why it's utterly terrifying, right? This is not a passage that's fun to talk about. This is not a passage that's fun to get into. And, and I think the question is, what exactly were they doing that would have met these kinds of descriptions? In verse 29, those, these descriptions, these conditions really highlight to you that it's personal. These are people who've trampled underfoot the son of God. They've walked all over him. They're people who have regarded as unclean the very covenant and the blood of the covenant that has actually sanctified them. Again, this is why I think he's talking to a believing audience, to the very people of God, people who've trusted in Jesus Christ and entered into relationship. They're very people who've been enlightened and now have also been sanctified by the blood of this covenant. These aren't people who are just on the periphery of the community. This is in-house discipline. This is how God handles his family. He says there are people who've also insulted the spirit of grace. This is, this is personal. Uh, the only example I could think of a parallel is, is in a sense, the guy who started dating you, but in knowing you and in dating you for a few months and decided to ditch you and go back to his former girlfriend, right? It's personal. <laughs> it's far more personal because there's knowledge of you. And in that knowledge of you, he's decided to trample all over you and head back to a formal girlfriend. And in the parallel, in a sense, I think what the people of Hebrews were doing was that they had come out of Judaism as the former girlfriend and they'd come and they met Jesus and knew I don't want to say girlfriend, but a new relationship, right? And in knowing Jesus, even as we walk through the book of Hebrews, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is better. Jesus is so much better than Judaism, all right? With Jesus, we have a better priesthood. With Jesus, we have a better sacrifice. With Jesus, we have a better temple, a better covenant, a better revelation, better prophets, better everything. Everything that you could see in Judaism, Jesus is so much better. And then for these people who are under pressure, what they were doing was finally hitting a breaking point and deciding I can't handle it anymore and I'm going to go back to Judaism. Because if I go back to Judaism, I can get out of this pressure. But in that betrayal, in that act, it was just a clear high-handed defiance against Jesus Christ. And it was saying to Jesus, hey, you're not good enough. You're not better than what the world offers and you're not better than what I have to endure. So the writer of Hebrews says, no, hang in. The motivations of what are available are so much better than what the world would offer and even better than the comfort of avoiding suffering and avoiding difficulty. So what exactly were they avoiding? I think ultimately what they were avoiding was judgment now. Um, I, I think the parallel we've already seen in Hebrews chapters three and four in which Moses in that generation encountered the judgment of God in their lifetime and the result and the consequence of not following through and not finishing through the task God had for them is that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And I think for you and I, if that was what they experienced for you and I can be even worse and that the wilderness and the wondering can be even more despairing that if you and I will not walk with Jesus Christ, even though that we know that what he's called us to is better than what the world will offer. If you and I forsake Jesus, you and I will find ourselves wandering in a desert that's far worse than what Israel experienced. In fact, I think it is even inclusive of premature death. And you even find in some, some, some examples of the New Testament that for some that go too far, for some that forsake him too far, that some of the consequences of their sin can be premature death. You can forsake him so far that your consequences of your sin may lead to an early death. It's incredibly strong. That was, was what example was in the Old Testament. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is it's even worse than that. If that's what they experienced in the Old Testament, which was premature death, then that may be included in what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. But even more, I think it's something even worse than that. And so I think one, it's an experience of judgment now, which you and I may wonder in this lifetime and choose things that are not better than Jesus. And the result of that is that you and I will land in a place that we're broken, 
that we're empty, that we're dissatisfied, and we're continuing to chase things that are far less than Jesus. And, and we feel like we can't even return to Jesus. And so let me encourage you again, and we're going to end here this morning in, in some of the techniques and some of the hows of how we continue to walk with Jesus, that no matter where you've gone, you can return to Jesus at any moment. Whether you've not even trusted him before, whether you have entered into a relationship with him, that relationship can be renewed at any moment. It doesn't matter where you've been. He's always open. His arms are always ready to forgive and to restore and to cleanse and to handle you anew. And I want to encourage you with that because even in the midst of moments where we may feel like we're wandering and we're in a desert, he's there to localize us. He's there to find us. He's there to restore us and he's there to recenter us. And yet I think what makes this judgment worse for you and I, what we can experience is that the judgment is not just now, but it is even later. Ultimately, I think what we find throughout the book of Hebrews and throughout the New Testament is that for the people of God who forsake Jesus Christ, who live their lives not for the kingdom that's going to be coming and for the king who's going to arrive, but we live and we, and we squander our lives in the present, but we can also squander an inheritance in the future. And ultimately, I think what the writer of Hebrews has been saying throughout this book, and even I think in Hebrews chapter 10, is that part of the judgment that awaits us is not just temporal, but it is going to be eternal. That for those of us who do not finish walking with Jesus Christ for a lifetime, that part of what we're going to miss out on is ultimately something we would call rewards. And we've been talking through that throughout the book of Hebrews, but this judgment is not just temporal, but it is also eternal. And part of that judgment that's to come in the future is not heaven and hell. Let me, let me say that as clear as I can. But there is a judgment that's coming in the future that will have an impact on eternity and have an impact after your life. And I'm going to give you guys an example here in a minute. But ultimately, part of that is what he started to talk about in verse 38. Part of that's shame. First John chapter 2, verse 28, we'll talk about this as well, that for you and I, a day is coming when our lives will be evaluated by Jesus Christ. And at that evaluation, depending on how we live, some of us may experience shame. First John 2, 28, and even Hebrews will talk about those who shrink back in shame. Because a day will come when we have to appear before him and he will look at our lives and the question will be, how have we lived? And he'll evaluate our lives. And for some of us, because of the way we live, we're going to shrink back in shame. For others, uh, there's going to be a loss of rewards. We talked about this 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, that Christ will evaluate our lives. And on the basis of how we live, some of us will receive reward, others will suffer loss. But the reward and the loss is nothing to do with heaven. All right, even for those that suffer loss at that moment of evaluation, it is not uh, contingent on heaven. In fact, I think for a lot of us, the idea of God judging his people is a revolutionary idea. And I know we've been talking about this throughout this book, uh, but First Peter will say, for it is time for judgment to begin with a household of God. A day is coming when God will evaluate his own family and his own household. And he's going to evaluate us on the basis of how we've lived, on the basis of what we've pursued and how we've invested our lives. Ultimately, I think judgment, as we look throughout through the Bible, occurs for two different groups of people at two different places at two different times. And I think this is a huge thing. I want you guys to catch this. Uh, But ultimately, I think the judgment of God occurs for two different groups of people at two different times at two different places. And I think a lot of people miss this. But ultimately, God is going to judge his own people, the church, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, at a place that we call in Greek the bima, or in English we call it the judgment seat, all right? And it's going to actually occur before God judges the world, all right? He's going to judge his, the people, his own people and then the world at two different places at two different times. In fact, we find from Revelation chapter 20 that he will judge the world uh, at a place that we call the great white throne judgment, all right? And so there's two different judgments for two different peoples at two different times. What's fascinating, though, is that both of the judgments for the church and for the world are on the basis of works. God judges the world and he judges his church on the basis of works. 
And yet what gets one to one judgment and one to another judgment is faith. Notice everyone who appears at the judgment seat of Christ has faith. Those that are going to be evaluated according to second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10 are all believers because the reason that they've arrived at that judgment is because they have faith. All that will arrive at the great white throne judgment do not have faith. And so the results of the judgments are totally different. All right. And yet, the idea that God will evaluate his people is a huge aspect of motivation. Knowing that I will one day appear before him and he'll look at my life and he'll look at how I've invested my life is a huge motivation for how I live my life. It was not so much a motivation for the occupation I chose. Catch that. That that evaluation judgment is not about your occupation, but it is about how you live no matter your occupation. All right. So in light of that judgment, it does not mean that all of you guys should go on the mission field and that all of you guys should become a pastor, all right? But it does determine in whatever vocation you're in, it does change your lens with which you see it. It changes the lens with which you see all of your life, whether it's a dating relationship, whether it's an occupation, whether it's a relationship, whether it's your money, the reality of a day of evaluation changes the way that you see all of your life and it begins to cause an accountability and a measure in which you want to pursue the things that are going to last for all of eternity. Ultimately, I think that judgment is a huge motivation for the people of the book of Hebrews to press on. In light of what was just momentary affliction, Paul will say in Romans 8, press on because there's a glory, there's a reward that awaits that's going to be far less temporary, right? I think shame at that day of evaluation for some people is temporary. But I think the rewards that are available and the rewards that are received are not temporary, I think part of those rewards impact the means of worship in heaven. Part of those rewards impact involvement in the kingdom that's going to be coming as we get to rule with Jesus Christ in it and be a part of it. There's a huge motivation, both carrot and stick, with how the New Testament writers approach you and I. The way that you and I live matters. It matters for eternity and it matters even in the present. Not just with rewards to come in the future, but even righteousness, the book of Proverbs will say, is practical even in the present. Not, not that necessarily that if you obey him, you're going to get everything you want, health, wealth, and prosperity, but there's a practical wisdom with walking with God and obeying him. Uh, there's a blessing that comes from it as you experience joy, as you experience peace, as you experience all that he has in store for you, even in the present. And yet you and I, the reality is you and I are going to experience suffering and going to experience difficulty. And the question is, will we pay the cost? Maybe some of us will say yes, but the question is, will we continue to pay the cost? <laughs> depending on the cost, depending on how much it is, and depending on how long it comes. For the, book, for the people of the book of Hebrews, they were growing weary. They were growing burdened as they were underneath that weight, which is why it says, I want you guys to press on. I want you guys to persevere. I want you guys to have endurance. I want you guys to be able to remain under that pressure. And so for you guys, even this spring, as school picks up, even as you guys are at spring break and in different situations, the question is, how will you respond to that pressure? Will you remain under it and endure it or will you slide out from it and pull away? My hope for you guys is that you guys will remain under it and that you'll continue to cling to Jesus no matter the cost, no matter the pressures. And even in finals, you know, honestly, I kind of laughed even as I looked at my own college time that as school heated up, I often found that my pursuit of Jesus cooled off, right? Uh, That my time in the word, my time in, in pursuing him cooled off, my time even with his people cooled off as school picked up and his pressures came. And so I want to challenge us in the midst of the pressure cooker of school, even at times. How will you and I endure through that? Will you and I continue to cling to Jesus Christ? I think often as we kind of walk through this passage, I think the majority of it is all about motivation. But we're going to end where the passage begins, which gives us a few methods or means by which you and I actually can endure. So maybe we've bought into that there's a good prize that's awaiting us. Maybe we've bought into that we want to avoid judgment even in the present and even in the day to come. But the question is how? 
Maybe we think the motivation is worthy, but even though you may know why, the question of how is critical. And so notice how the writer of Hebrews ends, actually starts this passage. He's going to give us, in a sense, a few key elements of how we can endure. Notice verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart. I want to challenge you. I think one of the first things and one of the first means for which you and I have as we approach Christ, as we endure faithfully for him, hopefully for a lifetime, is that you and I have access of faith. You and I have opportunity personally to come before Jesus Christ. And no matter where you and I have been, no matter what we've encountered, no matter how far we've deserted or gone off at times, you and I always have access of faith. You and I always have an opportunity to come before him personally. And he's always there to redeem and to restore and to forgive you and I. Even more so, I think what you see is not just that you and I have access of faith, but you and I have assurance of hope. Notice verse 22 again. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. You and I have not just a confidence in faith of what he's done, but we have a confidence in hope of what he's going to do. We look backwards in faith at what he's done, even though we could not see it or prove it. And we have an assurance of hope as we look forward and knowing that he's going to return and a day of evaluation will come. And even more, what I love is how the passage ends in verses 24 to 25 as we see that we have aid of love. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Ultimately, I think 19 to 23 highlight in a sense our, our, our vertical aspect of faith and hope in God and, and what he's done and what he's going to do. But I think verses 24 to 25 take us from the vertical to the horizontal and show us the necessity of the community of the people of God. You and I are to be looking out for one another, looking to stimulate one another, even in the midst of the pressures that we're encountering. You and I cannot walk this thing out. You and I cannot endure by ourselves. And so let me challenge you, if you think you're off in this campus and you're off in a place where you're trying to be a light for Jesus Christ, but you are a solo lone ranger, uh, take caution, all right? You need to find and you need to surround yourself with a community of the people of God. Otherwise, there's, not, there's going to come a time that you cannot endure that pressure. That the vertical is not enough. You've got to have the horizontal and that even in the horizontal, even the people of God, this is who and how God has provided so that you and I can endure. What I love, even as he talks about the people in verses 32 to 34, is you notice there were some who were experiencing pressure and, and were actually paying a cost, whether it was their possessions or being in prison. And what you find is that the horizontal community, there were some who were not yet experiencing that, but were coming to the aid of those who were. And so ultimately, what I want you guys to see, even as we kind of wrap up this morning, is that you and I are absolutely essential for one another. Whether that's this semester or whether that's when you leave, you've got to find the people of God. You've got to find community and you've got to do life with people who love Jesus Christ. It's not enough to walk with him by yourself. You've got to be in a community. You've got to find some people in your lives. If you're here this morning and you don't have that kind of community, that's why we do Sunday mornings because it sets up to connect you guys to ultimately an even better spot beyond Sunday morning, which is Tuesday nights. Uh, Whether it's on campus with some Christian organizations or here in a church setting on Tuesday nights in some of our small groups, small groups exist so that you can find community and that you can be challenged by the word of God. Small groups exist so that you can have community and that you can be reminded of the truth upon which your faith was built and upon which your hope is remaining and looking forward to. Ultimately, I want to challenge you guys as you kind of think through, where are you at this point in the semester? And what are the pressures that you guys feel even as you arrive? And and the question I want to ask you is, how confident are you still of the promises God has extended to you? 
How confident are you that he's going to return? How confident are you that he's going to provide what he's promised? How confident are you that he's better than whatever pressure you're experiencing? How confident are you that he's worth the cost that you're paying to walk with him and to trust him and to pursue him, even when others laugh and even when it costs you money and even when it costs you your time? My hope for you guys is that you're building your life in such a way right now in college that you're going to walk with him for a lifetime. I'll tell you the friends I had in college really are the same people that have surrounded me even now in my marriage and even now uh, in my community. Uh, Even this last weekend, calling a friend that was a college roommate, a friend that I did life with, a friend that was on my wedding, uh, my wedding party. There's still the people that I'm doing life with, not just people who have moved away, but even some people that are here right now. I cannot walk this thing out alone, nor can you. So I want to ask you, who's around you? Who surrounds you? And then even more so, how confident are you looking backwards at what Christ has done and its implications as you look forward to what he's going to do as he calls you to that and as you wait? The reality of the day is that you and I are going to groan and that we're going to suffer. The question of the day is, will we endure it? And will we remain faithful? Or will we choose the world? And will we choose things that are easier? Walking with Christ costs us everything. Trusting Christ costs us nothing to enter into a relationship with him. But having entered in, the reality is it costs us everything as he calls us to follow him and as the world comes and attacks us at times. So my hope for you guys is that you'll remain faithful, not just through college, but even for a lifetime and that you'll begin to build your life in a way, whether it's through friends or whether it's through knowing the word of God and the promises that he's extended that will allow you to have the ammunition to resist the enemy, to resist what your circumstances tell you at times, knowing that he's faithful, knowing that he's good, knowing that he's sovereign, knowing that he's holy knowing that he has the purposes to, uh, to bless you, to guide you, to direct you, and that he's not forgotten you, that he's not uh, uh, deserted you, and that you would walk with him for a lifetime so that you won't wander in the present and you won't squander your future. So let me pray for us. Father, Hebrews 10 is an incredibly difficult passage. <laughs> uh, it's sobering uh, to hear in many regards the way that you deal with us. Uh, and Father, I pray in, in our response to that, Lord, I pray that you would create a healthy fear a fear of your holiness, a fear of the fact that judgment can await us depending on how we live. Uh, and Father, I pray that you and I, w- you would enable us and prepare us for that day of evaluation, that you would enable us, that you would cultivate in us hearts for the affections that you have, the things that drive your heart. I pray that you would also uh, begin to build things in our lives so that we would walk with you for a lifetime, that you would surround us with the people who will encourage us, that you would place us in places that would remind us of truth, that would call us to truth, that would challenge us even in the things that they see in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to trust the people you've put around us. Uh, you would allow us to trust the people that would call us the truth, that would call us to the sin they see in our lives, and that we would be radical about the sin in our lives, and that we would root it out, that we would trust you with it, um, that we would hand it over, and that we would count you more worthy than anything this, off- this world would offer and more than anything that this world would cost us. Father, I pray that you would be enough, Lord. Father, I ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here this morning. And we'd love to see you guys at C&J's for lunch. And if you have some questions, I'd love to chat more with you guys on this passage. If not, we'll see you guys next week.